bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 27, 2012. I'm going to start today's podcast with a discussion about the House Republicans' proposed fiscal year 2013 budget. I'm also going to discuss an upcoming hearing on tax extenders, as well as a possible delay in the implementation of the Volcker Rule. I also have several other items in the general discussion as we kick off this podcast. In our new market tax credit discussion, I'm going to discuss guidance released last week by the CDFI Fund about serving targeted populations. I'll also examine the most recent QEI report and inform listeners of an exciting update that's been made to Novogratz and Company's free New Markets Tax Credit Mapping Tool. In our Renewable Energy segment, I'll briefly preview a hearing that's being held today about the effect of pending expirations of tax incentives on the renewable energy industry. I'll also discuss recent questions that were raised about the job-creating record of the Section 1603 Cash Grant Program. In the Local Housing Tax Credit section, I'll review the topics covered in the most recent issue of the IRS's LIHC newsletter. I'm also going to discuss a recent court case in Texas that could have significant implications for the long-lasting tax credit community in that state and possibly beyond. I'll share also an announcement from the USDA about teleconferences that it's going to hold on its Section 538 Loan Guarantee Program, as well as a common invitation from HUD regarding private-public partnerships that are used for mixed finance development of public housing units. And finally, in our historic tax credit section, I have a quick state-level update on legislation recently passed in Virginia that's fairly taxpayer-favorable. So, if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, as promised last week, I'll start today's podcast with a discussion of the House Republicans' proposed budget for fiscal year 2013. The proposal is dubbed The Path to Prosperity, a Blueprint for American Renewal. It was released by House Budget Committee Chairman Paul Ryan last Tuesday, March 20th. In short, the plan would cut spending by $5.3 trillion over 10 years, would make significant changes to the tax code, and would set revenues as a share of GDP at 18 to 19 percent, a percentage, by the way, that's in line with historical averages. The budget would also require several House committees to find sufficient savings over 10 years to eliminate the approximately $450 billion in planned defense cuts that were enacted in the Budget Control Act, and these cuts would apply under sequestration beginning in January of 2013. Now, as a subset of this $450 billion in planned cuts, the House Ways and Means Committee would be required to identify $53 billion of savings. That would be $53 billion of savings over a 10-year period. And the House Ways and Means Committee would be required to do this by April 27th. So if this proposal does pass the House, we should be looking for House Ways and Means hearings coming up dealing with this $53 billion. 
Now, for listeners that are interested in housing policy, I note that the plan calls for the eventual, probably emphasis on eventual, elimination of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, winding down their government guarantees, and ending taxpayer subsidies. The plan also calls for the full cost of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to be brought on budget. The significance of this is that that bringing it on budget would make their costs subject to the federal debt limit. The plan also highlights that the Federal Housing Administration, FHA's Mutual Mortgage Insurance Fund, that its reserve has fallen to 0.24%, while its congressionally mandated level is at least 2%. Now, regarding tax policy, the House Budget Plan was drafted with input from Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dave Camp. As you know, for more than a year now, Chairman Camp has been leading the congressional call for tax reform. Chairman Camp and Ways and Means Committee Republicans urged Representative Ryan to incorporate certain tax components in the budget plan. Those items were transmitted in a letter signed by all of the Republican members of the House Ways and Means Committee. That letter was sent on March 1, and a copy of the letter is available on taxcredithousing.com's website. The final budget adds three new components to last year's GOP proposed budget. From a tax perspective, it consolidates the current six individual income tax brackets into just two brackets, 10% and 25%. It repeals the alternative minimum tax, and it shifts from a worldwide to a territorial tax system for those companies with international operations. To achieve these significantly lower top rates of 10 and 25%, the GOP plan suggests eliminating tax subsidies in order to broaden the base. Separately, in a report released last week, the Congressional Research Service noted that the major challenges to tax reform plans, particularly plans that call for broadening the base by eliminating and reducing tax expenditures, is that tax expenditures are viewed quite positively by many Americans and by many members of Congress. More specifically, the CRS report notes that tax expenditures are A, viewed as serving an important purpose, are important for distributional reasons, are technically difficult to change, and, as I just mentioned, are broadly used by the public and quite popular. Because of these barriers, the report says it may prove difficult to gain more than $100 billion to $150 billion in additional tax revenues through base broadening. Now, that level of additional tax revenues would allow for a reduction in tax rates of about 1% to 2%. So as you can see, the challenges of tax reform, of lowered rates, and broadening the base is a significant challenge. Now, getting back to the Ryan plan, so far, the budget package has been welcomed by most House GOP members. On March 21st, the House Budget Committee advanced the proposed fiscal year 2013 budget by a vote of 19 to 18. Two conservative Republicans voted against the Ryan plan because they said it did not cut the budget fast enough. That's why it was a 19 to 18 vote versus a 21 to 16 vote. The budget resolution is scheduled to begin to be heard on the House floor this Wednesday and conclude on Thursday. Representative Ryan indicated last week that he was confident that he had the votes for his plan to pass the House. Similarly, House Speaker John Boehner predicted the plan would receive a strong vote of support on the House floor. Meanwhile, and this won't come as much of a surprise, the plan was deemed dead on arrival by the Democratic-controlled Senate.
However, regardless as to whether or not the plan moves out of the House, its provisions are a signal that this year's budget battle will be intense. For instance, Chairman Ryan's plan would cut overall fiscal year 2013 discretionary spending by $19 billion more than the already austere spending caps that were established by last year's debt ceiling deal. Now also last week, Chairman Camp and Select Revenue Measures Subcommittee Chairman Pat Tiberi announced that they would start holding hearings in April to examine tax extenders. In a statement issued about the hearings, the chairman said, and here I quote, Far too many provisions in the tax code are temporary, making it hard for employers to plan, invest, and create new jobs for American families. That is one reason why we are committed to comprehensive tax reform. An important part of comprehensive tax reform is to conduct a thorough review of the various target provisions in the code, commonly referred to as tax extenders, close quote. The chairman also said they will look forward to hearing from interested parties about the merits of the tax policies in question. I also note that last week, IRS Commissioner Doug Shulman urged lawmakers to act on the extenders one way or the other before the end of the year. In his comments during a hearing of the House Ways and Means Committee, Commissioner Shulman indicated that if Congress does not act this year to address tax extenders, that the IRS may have to delay next year's tax filing season for some taxpayers. Now, at the time of this recording, an exact date, time, and format of, of a tax extender hearing or hearings has not yet been set. However, as soon as details are formally announced by the Ways and Means Committee, I'll share that information in the following podcast and also to my followers on Twitter. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about the VOCA rule for a moment. During a Senate Banking Committee hearing last week, Fed Governor Daniel Torello told lawmakers that federal regulators will likely miss, that's right, likely miss the July deadline for finalizing the so-called VOCA rule. And if regulators miss their deadline, Torello said he thought it was incumbent on all the regulators to provide some guidance in the interim. Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke recently made similar remarks for the Senate Banking Committee and the House Financial Services Committee that the final VOCA rule would likely not be ready by the July effective date. As you may know, the specific language of the VOCA rule will be jointly determined by the Federal Reserve, the SEC, the FDIC, the OCC, and the Commodities Future Trading Commission. In October, the agencies released a proposed rule and have since received thousands of written comments, including comments from the Novogratic Tax Credit Working Groups. The banking and investment community has raised concerns that there could be market disruptions if a rule is not finalized by July 21st, when the rule takes effect. And I note that the rule takes effect under the statute by July 21 if implementing regulations are not released before then. Separately, Congressman Barney Frank, ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee and a co-author of the 2010 Financial Oversight Law that enacted the VOCA rule, aptly named the Dodd-Frank Law, called on regulators last week to issue a simplified version of the VOCA rule by September 3rd. In a statement released last week, Congressman Frank called the initial proposal released in October far too complex. Congressman Frank said that in order to reduce uncertainty by institutions that would be covered by the rule, regulators should issue formal guidance on its implementation, specifically for the period between the July 21st deadline and the date on which a final rule is issued. 
The specifics of Congressman Frank's request can be found online at www.novaco.com. Simply click on Hot Topics and then select the VOCA Rule link. In further related news, last week on March 22nd, Senators Mike Grapo, Mark Warner, Pat Toomey, Kay Hagan, Tom Carper, and Bob Corker, obviously a bipartisan group, introduced legislation that provides for the implementation of the VOCA Rule after the agencies have issued their final rules, rather than two years after the date Dodd-Frank was signed into law. That's the July 21 date. The lawmakers say that by linking the effective date to the regulators completing their work, Congress will not be arbitrarily extending the implementation of Dodd-Frank in financial institutions and markets, will be able to comply with final rules with less uncertainty. You can find a copy of the bill online at www.novaco.com. I'd also like to encourage you to share with us your thoughts on the VOCA rule and how delays in implementation is affecting or could affect tax credit investing. Simply send an email to cpas at novaco.com. And a couple of other items. In Senate news, the Senate voted 92 to 4 yesterday to limit debate and move toward a full floor vote on legislation that would repeal $21 billion in oil industry tax breaks and temporarily extend 18 tax incentives aimed at the use and production of clean or renewable forms of energy. Now, Republicans opposed the bill, which is Senate Bill 2204. They did support the cloture vote so that they can spend more time on the Senate floor to argue that the bill, if it was enacted, would lead to higher gasoline prices. Specifically, the bill eliminates the ability of oil companies to claim the Section 199 domestic production deduction, would end deductions for drilling and development costs, and would stop oil companies from using percentage depletion. On the spending side, or the revenue loss side, the bill would extend through 2012 a number of energy tax credits, including the Renewable Electricity Production Tax Credit. Unfortunately, the bill is not expected to pass the Senate. Now, also in a plan unveiled yesterday, this was unveiled by Senate leadership, that would be Democratic leadership, employers that added payroll in 2012 would be eligible for a 10% tax cut and the 100% bonus depreciation deduction would be extended for qualified capital investments through 2012. Now, Majority Leader Senator Reid said these two proposals, the 100% bonus depreciation and a 10% tax credit for adding payroll, that those two uh, proposals would help small businesses and was better than the House Republican plan to provide a 20% deduction on active income, which I'll talk about in a moment. Senator Charles Schumer said he expects the Senate to pass the measure in the coming weeks, likely the second half of April. So I mentioned this 20% deduction. What's that? Well, on March 28th, the House Ways and Means Committee will mark up legislation that provide a 20% tax deduction for small businesses. This hearing is expected to be contentious as Republicans and Democrats will use the forum to discuss their conflicting views as to the best way to reduce unemployment and support economic growth. The bill being marked up is the Small Business Tax Cut Act, H.R. 9, and was written by House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. It would give a 20% deduction to every small business with fewer than 500 employees, and there would be a limit based on wages. We'll give more updates on this bill in next week's podcast. In new market tax credit news, last week, the CDFI Fund posted a Q&A document that provides guidance 
as to how community development entities may serve certain low-income communities and target populations under the New Market Tax Credit Program. The Q&A document confirmed pretty much what we already knew about serving target populations. If there are specific points within the Q&A document that you find are new, we'd appreciate hearing from you. Simply send an email to cpas at novaco.com. The CDFI Fund also posted 2010 American Community Survey estimates of statewide median family income by family size. You can find copies of both documents online at www.newmarketscredits.com. Questions about NMTC-eligible census tracts can be directed to my partner, Brad Elphick, in our Atlanta office. And if you want to learn more about serving target populations under the New Market Tax Credit Program, I encourage you to contact a Novogratton Company professional in an office near you. Also last week, the CDFI firm released the monthly update to its ongoing Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report. The report identifies the dollar amount of allocation authority that has been issued to investors and the remaining amount to be issued. This is the first QEI report to reflect the ninth round of New Market Tax Credit Awards, which represents roughly $3.6 billion in newly available allocation authority. In February, approximately $103 million of QEIs were finalized. This is roughly a quarter of the amount that was finalized in January. With additional allocation authority, from the ninth round, the amount still available in New Market Tax Credit Allocation Authority is approximately $6.6 billion. That's as of March 12th. And I also note that a large portion of this $6.6 billion has been soft-circled, if you will, by community development entities. If you're looking for help in finding an allocation or help in closing a transaction, I encourage you to contact one of my partners. For instance, you could contact Annette Stevenson in her Cleveland, Ohio office, Owen Gray in our San Francisco office, or other partners in the Novogratic office near you. In closing, for those of you that are not subscribed to our free industry alert email service, I wanted to alert you to the fact that Novogratic Company's free New Market Tax Credit Tax Credit Mapping Tool has been updated to include NMTC transaction data through the end of 2010. This is data that was released last year by the CDFI Fund. The NMTC Mapping Tool allows users to determine if a location meets various distress criteria included in the New Market Tax Credit application. The online tool also includes thousands of data points representing billions of dollars of low-income community investments made through the New Market Tax Credit program since the beginning of the program and now through the end of 2010. The tool can be used to search for investments by congressional district, address, city, county, state, zip code, there's various ways that you can sort to identify NMTC investments in particular geographic areas. These various search options are helpful when you're educating members of Congress, as well as senators, mayors, and other elected officials about the types of transactions that are located within their districts and states. Now, NMTC industry participants can also complete the NMTC Mapping Tool Participation Form if you want to share data points for inclusion in the mapping tool that are not currently listed. If you have any questions about the NMTC mapping tool, please contact my partner, Brad Elphick, at brad.elphick at novaco.com or simply call our Atlanta office. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, the Senate Finance Committee's Subcommittee on Energy, Natural Resources, and Infrastructure will hold a hearing today, a hearing entitled Renewable Energy Tax Incentives. How have the recent and pending expirations of key incentives affected the renewable energy industry in the United States.
The hearing will be led by Subcommittee Chairman Jeff Bingaman and Senator John Cornyn. Witnesses are scheduled to include Ethan Zindler, who's Head of Policy Analysis for Bloomberg New Energy Finance, John Purcell, who is Vice President of Wind Energy for Lico Steel, Dr. Benjamin Zeicher, a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and Mr. John Reagan, Vice President of Business Development and Government Affairs for TPI Composites. I'll discuss developments from this hearing in next week's podcast. In the meantime, it's worth noting that last week, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus said that the wind energy industry should think very seriously about backing a proposal to phase out the wind production tax credit. In an interview with Bloomberg, Senator Baucus said that phasing out the tax credit might be the most realistic way to keep it from expiring altogether at the end of the year. Meanwhile, House Energy and Commerce Committee Chairman Fred Upton and Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee Chairman Cliff Stearns last week questioned the Section 1603 Cash Grant Program's record in job creation. In the letters to Energy Secretary Stephen Chu and Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, Chairman Upton and Stearns questioned testimony presented by Secretary Chu on March 16th when he said that the Section 1603 Cash Program has created tens of thousands of jobs. The lawmakers expressed concern about these statements in the context of reports from the Congressional Research Service and the Wall Street Journal that suggest a smaller volume of long-term job creation. In addition to seeking a full breakdown of jobs created and costs associated with the program, the committee leaders are also seeking answers about whether procedures exist for the Department of Energy or Treasury to recoup funds from recipients that violate the terms of their grants. And curiously, Novogratik and Company and Resident Group make a cameo appearance in Chairman Upton's request for additional information. A cameo we didn't realize was going to happen. In local housing tax credit news, last week, the Internal Revenue Service published issue number 48 of its LIHC newsletter. The letter is principally written by Grace Robertson at the IRS. The latest issue covers a number of topics. Those include relying on the new income limits, bed bugs and unit occupancy suitability, dispositions of loan compensating tax credit properties during year 11 of the compliance period, as well as a sort of administrative procedures. Now, in the discussion about dispositions in year 11, Novogratik and Company has discovered a discrepancy between the information presented in the newsletter and previously understood policy under Revenue Procedure 9138. Grace's newsletter says that LHCCs that are allowable in year 11 are prorated between the buyer and seller. That's if the property is transferred in year 11 as well as other years. However, in Revenue Procedure 9138, the IRS addresses differences in credit periods and taxable years, and in Revenue Procedure 9138, the IRS implies that year 11 credits would be allocated to the seller in the facts presented by Grace. Now, at the time of this recording, we were investigating the inconsistency and we'll report back next week on what we learn. In the meantime, a copy of the LHC newsletter and RevProc 9138 can be found online at www.tashtradhousing.com. And if you have any specific questions about this allocation of year 11 credits, I'd encourage you to contact my partner, Jim Kroger, in our San Francisco office. Now, turning to the state of Texas... There was big news 
The big news happened last week when the Dallas Federal District Court ruled in favor of the plaintiff in a lawsuit that challenged the Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs allocation of low-income housing tax credits in the Dallas metropolitan area. In its ruling, the court found that the plaintiff, the Inclusive Communities Project, Inc., had proven its claim that under the Fair Housing Act, the TDHCA, that its allocation decisions had a disparate racial impact, although an unintentional one. The Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs now has 60 days to submit a remedial plan to address those violations. The Texas Affiliation of Affordable Housing Providers, TAP, warned last week that it's possible that this ruling and the agency's remedial actions could affect the release of the 2012 housing tax credit allocations. At the time of this recording, little about the next steps is clear. However, reports do indicate that staff at the Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs are already developing a response and a plan of action, and they'll likely keep the tax credit community informed as conditions warrant. In the meantime, if you have questions about the ruling and its implications on your tax credit developments, I'd encourage you to contact my partner, George Littlejohn, in our Austin, Texas office. And, as always, we'll keep you updated on the situation in future podcasts. Let's go back to the federal level again and turn to the Section 538 Guaranteed Rural Rental Housing Program. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Rural Housing Service announced last week that it will be holding a series of teleconferences and web conferences on the Section 538 Guaranteed Rural Rental Housing Program. The events are scheduled to occur in April, August, and November. USDA said that the conference topics could include, but not be limited to, the following. Updates on the USDA's Section 538 program activities, perspectives on the current state of debt financing and its effect on the Section 538 program, enhancing the use of Section 538 financing with the transfer and or preservation of Section 515 developments, and the effect of loan housing tax credit program changes on Section 538 financing. The USDA plans to announce the conference dates and times via email to registered parties. Those interested in registering for and participating in the conferences or, or those who would like additional information about the conferences should contact Monica Cole at 202-720-1251 or monica.cole at wdc.usda.gov. That's M-O-N-I-C-A dot Cole, C-O-L-E, at W-D-C dot U-S-D-A dot gov. Additional information about the conferences can be found online in the March 20th Federal Register Notice, and that's available at the HUDResourceCenter.com website. That's www.HUDResourceCenter.com. Also, the Department of Housing and Urban Development last week invited comments about information that it collects related to public-private partnerships for mixed finance development of public housing units. The information that HUD collects and is seeking comment on relates to due diligence performed in order to approve the mixed finance development of public housing prior to a financial closing and the start of construction or rehabilitation activities. The 1998 Public Housing Reform Act allows the mixed finance development of public housing units. That act allows public housing authorities to create public housing using public housing grant or capital funds, and non-HUD funds, all of this subject to HUD's approval. 
The units are built to house a wide range of incomes and are designed to fit into the surrounding communities. At present, applicants describe the size, type, and number of units, the construction schedule, construction and permanent financing sources, property management, how public subsidies will be provided to the project, as well as other operation plans. HUD will accept comments on its information collection until April 18, 2012. Additional information about the information collection can be found in the March 19th Federal Register, and that's available at www.hudresourcecenter.com. In historic tax credit news, in Virginia, House Bill 531 was enacted earlier this month, clarifying the state tax treatment of income from certain historic tax credit transactions. HB 531 was enacted on March 6th and takes effect on July 1st. This bill, was, or now this law, was enacted in response to the recent Virginia Historic State Tax Credit ruling, wherein the allocation of federal tax credits was considered a sale such that income was recognized. So the bill provides that any game or income recognized under federal law from the allocation of the historic rehabilitation tax credit is not considered tax gain or income for Virginia income tax purposes. Obviously, it would be nice to see a rule at the federal level that was similar to this, but until then, having a rule at the state level is helpful. So we thank the state of Virginia for this rule, and it would also be nice to see laws like this one passed in other states. You can find a copy of HB 531 online at www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you have questions about the applicability of the bill to your particular transaction, I encourage you to contact my partner, Charlie Ruda. He's in our Boston office. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novoco.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novoco.com.